Really, I am far from cliche. Hello, I'm Steve Reed, and this is Steve Reed Chats. This mini-series is all about something that I've always been fascinated by and something that really intrigues me. UFOs, the paranormal, and beyond. Subscribe and turn on your notifications to make sure you know when the next episode is ready to listen to. And I have got some amazing special guests through this mini-series that have some great experiences and stories to tell. So let's go ahead and meet the person I'm going to be speaking to on this episode. He's an international best-selling author of well-known books about UFOs and aliens, renowned journalist and spokesperson. You would have seen him on programs including Ancient Aliens and UFO Europe, Untold Stories. He also ran the British government UFO program for 20 years as part of his position with the Ministry of Defence, with a job title that would have fitted into any Men in Black film. Hello, Nick Pope. Hi there, it's good to be on the show. And anyone that's um, looking for a chat with the England goalkeeper, Nick Pope, this really isn't the place for you. So uh, just to clear that up, I'm sure that's somewhere else to be found. Now, you know, Nick, it all sounds rather glamorous, doesn't it? UFO investigator. But I'm guessing you turning up at places in blacked out windows with the, with your dark glasses on, especially in the UK in the mid 90s, wasn't quite the reality. So what can you tell me about your previous job as UFO investigator at the MOD. Well, you're quite right. Despite the media sometimes calling me the real-life Fox Mulder, uh, we were not running around dark warehouses with torches and guns drawn looking for aliens or being harassed by some sinister cabal of of, Illuminati-type individuals who secretly run the world. Uh, The reality was it was much more office-based. Our terms of reference were to investigate the UFO phenomenon and assess the defense implications for the UK, as you might imagine. Is there evidence of any threat to the realm, any national security issue here? And much of what we did revolved around things like checking the radar tapes, getting photos and videos looked at by intelligence community imagery analysts, um, cross-checking with everything from weather balloon launches to satellite tracks and seeing if you could find conventional explanations for what people were seeing. So, yes, it was a wonderful, um, interesting, important, uh, bizarre and surreal job, but it wasn't quite like sci-fi. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm glad you've cleared that up for uh, many people that may have had that uh, vision in their head. If they want to continue to have that vision, then that's fine uh, with them. I'm interested, you know, in the original interview for the part of the position of your overall job, because I think that's uh, the correct way of saying it It wasn't just your job. It was a part of your job to be a UFO investigator for the MOD. What was that interview like and what can you remember from then? It was surprisingly routine, but the reason for that was that I had actually worked for that particular manager before. During the first Gulf War, uh, those of us with very high security clearances were seconded into a place called the Joint Operations Center to do do sort of 12-hour watch-keeping shifts. 12 hours on, 12 off, did it for a week, then you went back to your normal peacetime duties, and then you were back in again. So... I had actually uh, come across this manager before. He knew that I was due for a move. 
he had a vacancy coming up. So actually, it wasn't quite the huge sit-down interview that you might normally expect. It was almost casual. Uh, Nick, I've got this vacancy. Would you like to move from Secretariat Air Staff 1 to Secretariat Air Staff 2? And I said, sure thing. And I knew that the UFO work was was part of that, but there were other things that I had to do too. Interestingly, though I didn't know it at the time, one of the things I was going to end up doing was security clearance for the various books written about the Gulf War. So, you know, 100% of my time was not spent on on UFOs. It's difficult to put a percentage on it, but but my goodness, it was a fascinating job. But the interview itself, as I say, surprisingly low-key. Now, were there any site visits here in the UK? Because there are so many programmes on TV about things going on in America that are thrown our direction, and not so many, I think it's fair to say, about things that may have occurred in the UK or people reporting things. So can you tell me about any site visits and, you know, what, what it turned out to be? Well, we had about two or 300 UFO reports each year, but pretty much all of those, particularly on my time doing this job, were um, not reports that something had crashed or landed. So, uh, of course, in those, in those circumstances, going to a location is, a, frankly, a waste of time and resources because all you would be doing is listening to someone pointing in the sky and saying, it was up there. Um, <laughs> three weeks ago. Well, that doesn't that doesn't really help you. No. So that's why I say earlier, you, you know, you're far better off doing things like chasing down the radar tapes and getting photos and videos if you're lucky enough to have them analysed and and liaising with astronomers, meteorologists, um, other intelligence personnel, whoever it may be. But I mean, yeah, we two or three hundred reports each year. Um, most of them, after investigation, turned out to be misidentifications of fairly ordinary objects and phenomena, exactly the sorts of things you would expect. Aircraft lights, weather balloons, satellites, meteors. Uh, more recently, because there's been a real uptick in this, Chinese lanterns. Mm. Uh, but, but a fairly standard list of things that you know, going back decades, give rise to reports of of people seeing strange things, but aren't actually strange. So so what you then try to do is very quickly weed those out and hone in on the, what I suppose you might call the core phenomenon, the 5% or so that you can't explain and say, what are we dealing with? Hmm. I, I suppose one thing that comes to my mind that mystified everybody and made a lot of public press are the crop circles that now you you don't hear anything about although it may still be going on but it doesn't seem to make the media is that fair to say it is fair to say uh, it is actually still going on but the media and the wider public broadly speaking have lost interest in this but around about 1989 1990 and coming to a head in 1991 this was mainstream media news uh, in the UK, but also all around the world. Then I think the bubble burst somewhat with this expose that two old guys <laughs> came forward and said, it was us yes. with, with 
ropes and planks of wood and, and enjoying a warm summer's evening fooling the world. And sure, they didn't create every single pattern, but they probably had their hand in a lot of them and they had their imitators too. And I had always thought, and I never, this is never popular with, with some people in the UFO community, but I had always thought this was, this was more of a distraction uh, hoax than, than anything really connected with the UFO phenomenon. With UFOs, of course, what we were really interested in, I mentioned this term, the core phenomenon, and we're seeing this playing out now in the United States with everyone seen, for example, those, or a lot of people, most people probably have seen or heard of these US Navy videos of the jets chasing the UFOs. Uh, they've heard about this secret Pentagon program called ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And they're aware that there is congressional interest in this and that mirrors what we were really interested in the mod not not the crop circles but the pilot sightings the the cases where these things are, are tracked simultaneously on military radar systems performing speeds and maneuvers in excess of anything we have and the question arises is this russia is this china or is this something else i'm going to get on to the way those videos have been seen and how the possibilities are of how those vehicles or whatever they may have been in the sky uh, would have moved around a little bit later when we talk about a relatively new element on the periodic table some people may not have heard of it and uh, it'd be good to discuss that with you the other thing i was going to ask you is would a country have a first protocol or first contact protocol in place in the event of a visit from the stars and, and can you give me an idea of what sort of thing that would be you would think the answer would be absolutely, because even if you're sceptical, it should fall into the category of what in government contingency planning is called uh, low probability, high impact. And you might say, very controversial, you might say global pandemic is an example of low probability, high impact, and where the cabinet office did indeed have plans, though I have to say they didn't really survive first contact with the enemy but that's another <laughs> that's another story <laughs> there, that's a great comment <laughs> there, brilliant there is there is really no there's certainly no alien invasion war plan hmm. there isn't even what i might call a more general first contact plan the nearest that we have is a series of what are called detection protocols drawn up by uh, SETI, which is Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, the radio astronomers who use radio telescopes to listen for signals or messages from other civilizations. And they thought, rightly so, it would be smart to have a plan. And they drew up a plan. It's not a very extensive one. It just says, step number one, if you pick up a signal, validate it independently with another radio uh, observatory. And secondly, for a reasonable period of time, consult with an um, international body like the United Nations over how this should be disseminated. But three, because it's basically a science protocol, uh, as soon as we can, tell people, share the data and uh, shout it from the rooftops. 
Now, a government plan for first contact would be slightly different, I think. And it would need to, probably the first thing it would say is if you have a landing, uh, establish a sort of cordon, a secure zone so that nobody can can go into it and and contaminate the, the situation. And that leads me to the next point. When I say contaminate, I mean that literally, because one of the issues that would arise is, is there a potential biological hazard from this? Uh, us to them, them to us. And NASA, to be fair, do have some, they're called planetary protection protocols uh, covering this very thing. You know, if you if you go and bring back rocks from the moon or Mars or, or an asteroid, uh, you, you treat them as if they were the most deadly thing in in you know our, our knowledge and you you have the sort of category five biohazard protocols because we don't want the venusian flu we don't and uh, I, I think it's a good idea we check william shatner's pockets then on the way back today we're recording this I, on the on the day he made his trip successfully to and from uh, the uh, qualified point that they consider space uh, well, well done to him on that. So, yeah, check his pockets. He boldly went. He boldly <laughs> went. Yes. And I, I set, set that up nicely for you. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, I, yeah, that's uh, that's tremendous mm. news and good good for him. I, I filmed a show with him uh, fairly recently, actually, and uh, he's, he's, I think, 90 now, but still yes. pin sharp and... and yeah, good for him. Good for him. You know, so mm, I didn't want to use the headline, which all the media are using as the oldest man in space, but it really is. He is the oldest man in space as far as we found so far. So you never know. <laughs> Possibilities are endless with 40 billion Earth-like planets in the universe that we know about already is a fact that I always that always blows my mind. Um, you mentioned, Nick, about the signals there. Now, there was a, a famous signal back, I believe it was in the 60s, and it was labelled the wow signal uh, because that's what the person that listened to the signal wrote on the recording piece of paper, believed that the signal they heard was something that could be of alien nature. Is that is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And yes, the science is is basically uh, has, has moved on in leaps and bounds since then. Uh, that signal, sadly, they were never able to triangulate exactly where it emanated from in the universe, and it never repeated. So there's still a great mystery about that, but it's, it's one of the great, probably the best-known candidate signal. And for anyone who's... who's you know, listening to this chat and thinking, what what's all this stuff about SETI and radio astronomy? The best intro I would suggest is the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. Brilliant. I mean, uh, there's very good science behind that, and it's based on a book by the late great Carl Sagan. So, okay. so yeah, ev- everything you see in that movie is scientifically accurate as regard to what they're looking for and and the sorts of signals that we might. See, for example, somebody putting out the value of pi or or a sequence of prime numbers hmm. to get our attention as a sort of beacon. Yeah, no, that that's great. And we, we, we do that now with space launches as well. Some people might not be aware that 
that before a big rocket space launch or uh, a probe launch or something that's going to be traveling through space, there are uh, collective pieces of information and, and music as well put on board that craft so if, if uh, kind of like a little snapshot of earth and i i'd love to be in the boardroom when you're, you're trying to decide that i mean you find it hard picking a sandwich in m&s i mean where do you start when you <laughs> when you've got to think about what to include there, there's no end is there and you know who gets the final choice on that uh, lucky them uh, on on the music well, interestingly, Carl Sagan, who, who we were talking about, had a big say in what went into uh, the, the Voyager probe, okay. for example. Um, we've, we've sent Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11. As you say, there's music. There are, of course, diagrammatical representations of a man and a woman. Um, there, there are... Uh, pieces of scientific information about the the sun and the planets that would help eventually, if if an alien civilization comes across these probes, uh, determine where our location is. And there are all sorts of other things. So, for example, there are greetings. Just I think people saying literally hello in every language on Earth. Mm. Uh, but yes, they have literally. They had committee meetings on this at NASA and <laughs> Carl Sagan was a big part of that. But it's an interesting question and it's a wider, almost more philosophical question that people have been thinking about more recently. Who speaks for planet Earth? And if we pick up a message, do we reply? You know, some people say if there are more advanced civilizations out there, it might not be smart to advertise our, our presence. And if we do reply, what do we say? Well, if we simplify that into a terms of it depends where you land on Mars as to what impression you get of the planet. It's the same in England or the same in any part of the world. That's not the whole story. So I guess that's why there's an eclectic mix of things to give a kind of over, over a broad example. I just imagine things being discovered in a thousand years and, and an alien, alien form saying, uh, do you know, that this is so 3,000 years ago. These guys, well, so behind. <laughs> I think... I think one one fascinating thing is is one of the people currently associated with the SETI Institute is the astronomer Seth Shostak. And he said, just send them everything, send them the internet <laughs> and let them sort it out. But I always think I always think I hope any aliens that get all this are able, for example, to differentiate between fact and fiction. Hmm. Because what if they stumble across <laughs> things like uh, the Friday the 13th movies, the Halloween <laughs> movies, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies? They'll think, geez, we need to nuke this place. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's bypass there. Let's, there must be another place somewhere. Come on, we got a bit of fuel left in our tank. Now, you mentioned SETI, and I don't want that getting confused with the next question because it's very different. You, you and I, by the way, share an experience in common something that happened when you visited the Assetti ranch different Assetti at Trout Lake Washington and now Assetti is the enlightened contact with extraterrestrial intelligence ranch tell everyone about what they do at Assetti if you don't mind and what you witnessed when you did your sky watch and also if you don't mind including a little bit about the viewers because that that seemed like quite an eye-opening trip for you Yes, I'm a series regular 
on ancient aliens. And every now and then they ask me to do a field shoot where I go out as a sort of roving reporter and tell a particular story to the viewers. And one of these stories revolved around, as you say, the Isseti Ranch, which is it's in up in Washington state in the northwestern United States. It's it's within a few miles of, of the majestic Mount Hood, which which dominates the the kind of view from there. It's it's around 35 acres. It's it's a beautiful location. And uh, many strange things have been reported there, as indeed on a similar or similar but different ranch called the Skinwalker Ranch mm. in Utah, which is also the center of a lot of mysteries. But the Seti Ranch, I went up there two or three years ago now, and we did a sky watch. And I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to see anything, but surprisingly, I did. And so, you know, we sat there for a long time and we looked and, you know, nothing much happened. And then suddenly someone started, you know, pointing and whispering loudly, look, look up there. And, and I looked and there was something. And, you know, it was bizarre. And I'm not claiming that it was like, like the mothership on Close Encounters of the Third Kind or anything like that. I mean, it was just a light in the sky, but it was odd. And one of the people had with him a satellite tracker. So you you can tell, um, hooked up to various computer systems, for example, what aircraft are flying in the area. And, uh, you know, there are various apps, of course, for this sort of thing, flight tracker or whatever they're called, and the same with satellites. And we eliminated all that. And, and so it was rather odd. So there I was, you know, pretty grounded and broadly skeptical ex-government guy and suddenly well okay you know it's i guess by literal dictionary definition it's a ufo it's something in the sky that i can't identify and and so that was an interesting experience what made it doubly interesting was that we had with us as part of this team a number of so-called remote viewers mm. these are sometimes dubbed psychic spies remote viewing is is basically a, a more scientific term for psychics but there have been government programs um, codename things like grill flame and sunstreak and most famously stargate uh, government programs that have essentially recruited and or trained psychics from within the ranks to see if they can find the sorts of things that we're always interested in finding, the location of Russian ballistic missile submarines on patrol, dead letter drops that spies might use, missile silos in, in the middle of the Chinese landscape somewhere that we didn't know about, uh, drug shipments, all, all those sorts of things. And it's fairly well documented now that governments and intelligence agencies have occasionally dabbled in this and and so you know we had some civilian remote viewers with us and they said it, it was bizarre and surreal they said there's something about the mountain mount mount hood there's something almost in mm. the mountain i it wasn't quite clear whether they meant a, a a base or a 
a UFO or an entity or, or just energies, but there was something about that location. And it was a fascinating trip. And with, with all these episodes, I never try to tell the viewers what to think. Mm. I, just, I just take them through. The camera follows me around. I interview the various people. Um, and we show and tell, basically, and people can make up their own minds. But it, it was an interesting experience for sure. I could tell that, you know, just uh, from watching and and your reaction when you saw. And I, if you don't mind me, I'm just going to explain a little bit more about what you saw in the sky. I would describe it like this. Um, I think at the time you called it an anomaly. And it was a star-sized, star-colour, star-shape object that was moving not quickly like uh, you would imagine a, a comet or an asteroid or something like that in the distance it was moving at a, at a pace and i think it lasted for about six or seven seconds and then it just vanished as if it would on a non-clear night which it was a clear night it, it kind of what you'd expect uh, something to go behind a cloud and and then it just completely vanished is that about accurate to to what you saw yes it is and you know i've seen plenty of satellites i've seen the international space station mm. i've seen plenty of of meteors um so I, I i know what i'm looking at when i'm looking at the night sky i know what i'm looking at and and if this had been a meteorite or a satellite I would have instantly recognized it and said, oh, yeah, then that, that's nothing to worry about. Mm. See, see, I have the same. So we share this experience, which is, is which is brilliant timing for me to record this with you, because mine was about a month and a half ago. And I don't know why I don't do more of this. It was a really warm evening. And so I would got the uh, chair out in the garden. It got dark. It was lovely and warm. And I just reclined it all the way back. And I thought I'm just going to lay here and look at the stars. And if, if you've not done that before, it's such a beautiful thing to do anyway. And I, I was looking up towards, I'd say between Arcturus, some people call it Arcturus, uh, and Cygnus, so kind of a bit of a range there, but in that direction in the northern hemisphere here in England. And I saw exactly what you experienced. And I thought, well, this is brilliant because I've got to talk to Nick about that because I, I've seen it was literally the same thing. Six seconds. I've seen the space station. It's a beautiful sight to see. It's a, it was a, the space station's a lot brighter in the sky than this particular round object that I saw. Mine was at the same distance as you'd expect to see a, a star at as well right there. And it was as if it was kind of just kind of passing through. And I think that's what one of the viewers said to you. Uh, at the time that this could have been someone passing through our dimension or our galaxy at the time and then moving into another dimension, which um, is something that was mentioned. Yes. And a few years ago, talk of other dimensions would just have been dismissed as science fiction. But now, of course, theoretical physicists like Michio Kaku are talking about this quite openly and experiments are taking place at at locations like the Large Hadron Collider, looking for experimental validation of these so-called hidden or other dimensions. And, and you actually need those dimensions for string theory to actually hang together and and work. So and, and there are different branches of string theory. So so as I say, it's it's uh, a few years ago all this would have doubtless been dismissed as crazy talk. Now not so much. 
Now, talking of string theories, obviously uh, quite famous for a famous scientist that uh, I'd quite like to have a chat with, uh, who's a theorist as well that you may have seen on Ancient Aliens. But enough about him. I'm talking now scientists, because ironically, you might not know, Nick's wife is a scientist. And I bet that sparked a few interesting conversations along the way, Nick. It has. She really is scully to my mulder, I suppose, (laughs) because she's also a She's a skeptic and a redhead as well as a, a scientist. So Brilliant. there you are, the real life Scully. Brilliant. And it's good to have an eclectic mix in a relationship. And uh, I'm sure that is how the secret of keeping things fresh. I'm sure many people would agree with that. Um, now, talking science, there is a relatively new chemical element on the periodic table. I might be raising a few eyebrows here of people saying, well, how did I miss that one? Well, it's an element called M115. Now, for those that aren't aware, Nick, can you explain a bit about that and how it is significant, especially the possibilities it could create or, in fact, has already created relating to what we mentioned earlier, uh, possible object movement in the sky? Well, without giving too much classified information about my age away, but when I was at school (laughs) and studied chemistry... Listen, you're not William Shatner. We're okay there. (laughs) (laughs) Well... The periodic table didn't didn't really go that high, and <laughs> and at the upper end of it were all these radioactive elements with very short half lives. But hmm. people were were speculating. Well, you know, it it doesn't it shouldn't just stop. It we should find that there are other elements, even if they are only stable for a few nanoseconds on planet Earth, but they should nonetheless exist and we should be able to synthesize them. And a number of laboratories around the world had been working on this. And in in 1989, a a whistleblower called Bob Lazar Mm. came forward and uh, investigative reporter George Knapp was was at the heart of, of this and he brought Bob Lazar's story out. And Bob Lazar's story was that he'd worked at the secretive Area 51 base in Nevada in the US, where you know, a lot of secret prototype aircraft have been developed and test flown, and where UFO believers think that that UFOs are being crashed UFOs are being back engineered and we're developing our own. And he said that part of that involved trying to figure out the propulsion system that would be capable of faster than light travel or somehow pushing between our dimensions the the four in which we operate and and these hidden dimensions and that the way to do that would be gravity gravity is the key of all the four fundamental forces electromagnetic strong nuclear, weak nuclear, and gravity. Gravity is the big unknown. It's the one we don't really get. Mm. And and most theoretical physicists think that if if interstellar travel is is possible and viable interstellar travel, that gravity will somehow, or anti-gravity even, will be the key. And Bob Lazar said that's exactly how it works. But the key to this, the energy source, is area, is element... 115. And of course, at the time, this was just theory. Mm. And people dismissed him as as a fantasist and and things. And then years after he came out with this story, 
a laboratory in Moscow synthesized area, uh, element, element 115. And so recently there's been a, a little bit of a vindication of Bob Lazar, and people are looking back and saying, wait a minute, decades ago this guy was talking about it, and only now has, has the science caught up. What else did he say mm. that might be worth another look so it's it's fascinating i mean i i'm not i'm not a scientist so i don't i really can't speak to the details of it but there's a lot of interesting information about element 115 um, on on the the internet and of course one speculates that the periodic table goes and and it does go further and higher and if if people are interested in this they can also look search on the term periodic table island of stability because people talk about how how some of these very high uh, elements are only stable for a few nanoseconds mm. well again there's there's this theory that uh, there's this island of stability and then of course people say well if element 115 is unstable on earth what about other planets maybe where there's a stronger gravitational pull um, could it be stable or at least stable for longer in other conditions somewhere in the observable universe? So, so there are some really interesting questions being thrown out about all this. I love that. And uh, yeah, you're right. You aren't a scientist and you, you read things and you learn things from things that you hear. And I appreciate the point you're making there. What I've learned about it is um, fascinating to do with one of the explanations of the very famous uh, viewing video of what has been described as a tic-tac shaped object that was recorded on board a couple of uh, a jet fighter. And that video is something that is very famous now. But the, 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 the thing that's been highlighted is the glow around that tic-tac and the relation between element 115 and the possible glow and how that could be related and how that spaceship or how that object rather moves in the sky because it doesn't move like any object we know of on Earth. No, it doesn't. And there are actually three of these videos that have been released to the public and and there there is zero doubt about their authenticity they are they are 100% the real deal and um, we can people can see them for example on the department of defense website they've put them up there for everyone to to look at and they've confirmed yes they are genuine us navy videos and yes they remain unidentified and as you say there's this glowing aura that one sees and there's also on one of the videos a very sudden almost right angle turn mm. I, I, and again in my ministry of defense research and investigation on on this phenomenon we were always looking for speeds and maneuvers and accelerations that we couldn't do almost as a sort of litmus test of this is the core phenomenon this is this is what we should be really concentrating on so yes people look at those videos and they say is there an unusual energy source propulsion system and sure some people have speculated again about element 115 bob lazar's claims uh, people have speculated about the employment of almost a, a new physics 
or at least a physics we don't currently understand. And again, if anyone thinks this is sci-fi, it isn't. Shortly after the existence of the Pentagon's ATIP program was revealed, the Defense Intelligence Agency wrote to Congress and said, this is what we have been studying. And the 38 scientific and technical papers produced under the ATIP contract included anti-gravity, invisibility, stargates, warp drive, and wormholes. So, so all these things that, that skeptics were probably saying, oh, this is just crazy fringe conspiracy sci-fi nonsense. Hmm. All the time, the US government has been studying it. And one wonders how much progress has been made. I guess a good analogy is, you know, um, some people speculate because you can't see something, you can't believe in it, which, uh, you know, completely as an open minded person, I get that completely. But a good analogy would be a black hole. And only when you see the, the light emitting from the black hole, do you understand that it's there? So the way we look at science is I'm, I'm really glad. And the way we look at uh, non-science or non-proven science is a lot more open minded to what we may have done so in the past. And I think that's the way forward with this. And also, back on the element 115, it's not it's an unnamed element. So if you're looking for this on the internet, it it, it doesn't have a name. So a bit like Boating McBoatface, we'll, uh, we'll welcome suggestions and you may well be the winner of that competition in, in, in the future, based on what Nick and I are saying. Yes. Now, I think, uh, to be fair, I think the Russians have named it. Okay. And I think... I think because it was discovered or, or rather synthesized and, and therefore experimentally validated in a Moscow laboratory, I think they, they have called it something like Moscovite or, or <laughs> Moscovinium or, or some, something like that. But whether that has been adopted by the whatever the international body mm. that, that regulates chemistry uh, or not, I don't know. And, and of course, the search for elements at, at progressively higher values goes on. And uh, yeah, it's, it's even for a non-chemist, I think if people look up these things, element 115, uh, island of stability, um, all, all that, it's fascinating. Now, of course, there is always this bridge that needs to be built between the theoretical physics and the aeronautical engineering, because mm. it's one thing to have your equations, it's quite another to actually build something. But again, you know, with the US defense budget being the size it is, uh, people are throwing big bucks at this sort of thing. And, and rightly so. I mean, this is the technology that will take humans to the stars. I mean, we've, we've talked about William Shatner going into space, but yes. in the longer term, in the longer term, if the human race is to survive, we will need to to colonize other planetary systems around other stars. So, and, and we're not going to do that with the the speeds of the the rockets we currently have. Even our fastest rockets would take about seventy five thousand years to get to the nearest star aside from our sun. That's so a great, we need a great fact. I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> 
We uh, need a breakthrough. We do. And I don't mean to, you know, we've been through a few years of uh, bad news. I don't mean to throw any more bad news. However, the, the fact is that scientists suggest that in four billion years time, the sun will implode the earth and we will be no more. So we kind of need a, a, a plan B for the future. And uh, I'm glad we're looking at, at doing that. So I've been looking at some of your recent social media posts and it's very clear to me that you're not particularly happy, you mentioned the Pentagon earlier, with um, certain papers that have been released, supposedly. There was a big build-up to this, okay? there was. Uh, it, it's been years in the making. We're going to release some information, you know, uh, s- show people a few things, let them know a bit more. And quite frankly, it, it seemed like a bit of a letdown to you that the recent papers released from the Pentagon giving further information, explanations on certain things wasn't quite there. Tell me a bit about that and how you're feeling about that. Sure. I have mixed feelings about it. I knew this was coming. I I mean, I think people who've been watching this were aware that over a year ago now, the Senate Intelligence Committee wrote into legislation a requirement that the U.S. Director of National Intelligence produce what you might call an intelligence assessment, not of Russia, not of China, but of the UFO phenomenon. And they did that, or rather, on June 25th, they released a preliminary assessment. Hmm. Congress got a classified version. The media and the public got an unclassified nine-page summary which can be read on the website of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And it's a mixed bag. Um, The the good news is that it says that, you know, of the UFO uh, sightings that they studied, um, pretty much all of them were assessed as real solid objects. Um, A lot of them were detected across multiple platforms simultaneously. So it's not just the pilot seeing them, but it's the radar, it's the forward-looking infrared cameras, and we talked about those those videos, hmm. for example. It's satellite imagery, it's electro-optical, it's weapon seekers, it's, it's a whole range of different detection methodologies. So... So that's validation that you're not just dealing with people misidentifying things or just with, for example, a glitch in in a radar system or in a, a camera or a computer because it's simultaneous across lots of multiple platforms. So that was important. And also, it talked about how some of these objects are putting out RF, so radio frequency energy, Again, I like this conversation because we keep looping back to, to the, the previous thing. And, and it's true. Everything is connected to everything else because this takes you back to the idea of some sort of energy source or exotic propulsion system, uh, these things. So the report says is putting out radio frequency energy. Some of them are also demonstrating a degree of signature management. In other words, they are taking active steps to reduce their detectability, Mm. for example, through things like stealth. Mm. All of this is telling us that there is a technology here. 
But as I say, it takes us back to the question, is this Russia, is it China, or is it something else? And again, the good news for the UFO community, they have certainly not been able to take the extraterrestrial hypothesis off the table. And indeed, people like Senator Marco Rubio uh, have, have said, I would far rather this was extraterrestrial, because if this is Russia or China, they've made a quantum leap mm -hmm. in technological development that has left the United States standing still. And that would be a catastrophe in defense and national security terms. And a lot of people in the military intelligence community who have a very good idea, mm. even though it's classified and they won't say exactly where, but they have a very good idea of where Russia and China are mm. with this, uh, have said, I don't think it's Russia or China. So suddenly the extraterrestrial hypothesis is, is, is no longer just something to be dismissed as fringe. It's gone mainstream. Now, what's it's it's gone a little quiet now, and that's there is a frustration in the UFO community. It's gone, it's gone quiet. It's not clear whether I mean Congress is due for and has probably already received a 90-day update. And I reached out to a spokesperson at the office of the Director of National Intelligence, and they said, We don't have anything for you on on whether or not a report has been delivered mm -hmm. or whether it'll be made public or, or even an unclassified summary, but we can tell you that it's focused on technical issues and collection issues. In other words, what they're doing now is they're tightening up the system, making sure that not just Navy pilots, but Air Force pilots, um, you know, anyone in the military and commercial airline pilots, they all report what mm. they see, and that it's properly investigated quickly by the military intelligence community. And also some technical issues. For example, at the moment, um, people use filter programs to edit out a lot of things that are picked up on radar. But if they don't behave like conventional aircraft, yeah. for example, carrying a transponder mm. and and as they call it in, in the aviation community, squawking, mm -hmm. the filter program will edit that out. Well, if we're being visited by extraterrestrials, they won't be carrying a transponder. Uh, so <laughs> Either that or they're trying to we... double bluff us, and uh, that's a very exactly. clever thing to well, do. Yeah. Who, yeah. who knows? But yeah, so, so there are some technical issues. So the bottom line is it's gone a little quiet now, but things are going on behind the scenes and into the next round of legislation, both Intelligence Appropriation Act and Defense Appropriation Act, have gone forms of words which will keep uh, the military intelligence community focused on this and make sure that they have the, the resources to deliver these assessments for Congress. So it's exciting times, but... The media and the public aren't getting to hear much of what's going on. 
No, I think, you know, will we know in our lifetime why why that is? I, I, I hope so. You hope so. You know, I'm going to ask you in a, in a minute about your ultimate aim. But before that, I've just thought of something that a lot of these sightings that are reported happen to be around nuclear areas, around military uh, areas. Why do you think that is? We don't know. There are two theories the first theory is that there might be a sort of statistical bias in in the data here in that obviously airspace around nuclear facilities and military bases more generally that airspace is more heavily surveilled than you know other areas say selected at random so there's a sort of selection bias here with your sample and, and it may just mean that we're picking up more things there because we're looking mm. more. Mm. So that's the first issue that we have to unpack. The second theory about this is that maybe a lot of this is secret prototype aircraft, missiles, and drones, and that there, there's even a theory that sometimes UFO stories are concocted as a sort of cover. You mentioned the the phrase double bluff in a different context, but but maybe it is a sort of double bluff Mm. that we would far rather the media, if they stumble across this, run a story about UFOs than run a story about, hey, I think I might have seen America's next generation spy plane. (laughs) So... Yeah, there is. And I love that speculation behind it, because it really gets the mind wandering on that. And, it, and it's worth remembering, it, it isn't just, we've mentioned UFO a lot, but of course, people might not have heard of USOs, which are unidentified submerged objects. And I have a story for you, a very quick one about this. A friend of mine's husband, he works as a marine engineer on a super yacht. And uh, they they can't tell me who who the super yacht belongs to because of uh, privacy reasons, or even I don't know. However, the story is that of a, of a sighting of a of a USO of a glowing object under the sea, underneath the boat, recorded, shown it to friends and family on video, got it all there, and and that to to see that. I mean, we've seen a star in the sky, Nick. I mean, that's uh, next level, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating side of this, and it's for some time now. It's almost been one of the dirty little secrets of of this phenomenon that there are, have been these underwater contacts. Uh, some of which I understand from reliable sources have been tracked, for example, by U.S. Um, submarines on on their classified sonar systems again performing speeds that that really defy conventional explanation lou elizondo who ran the pentagon's atip program has brought to people's attention the term transmedium travel to discuss this apparent characteristic of some of these objects to be able to move seamlessly from travel in space to travel in our atmosphere to travel under our oceans and and indeed the tic-tac object 
was at one point seen under the water. And there is another video, I think, taken in about 2013, 2014, uh, just from memory, in Puerto Rico from, I believe, a Homeland Security aircraft with a forward-looking infrared camera. And that shows an object at one point traveling above the sea and, and then descending under the, the waves. So, so it's an interesting side of this. And again, because so much of this probably involves ballistic missile submarines, nuclear ballistic missile submarines, uh, it's, it's so highly classified the media and the public won't get to hear much about this. But it's it's a side of this story for sure. I suppose if your if your country and your military and you you know, speculation here, but you discover something, the, the question is, why would you, you know, announce that to the rest of the world? Because unfortunately, unfortunately, and this is a sad reality, the the world that we live in uh, leans towards having protection for where you live rather than sharing that as a world um phenomenon that we could all benefit from uh, because to me it it comes down to one word trust and unfortunately there's not that uh you know equal trust amongst countries around the world and uh, i hope for a day when that happens because maybe that information could be beneficial to all of us i think so yes and uh, takes us to a wider debate about whether a nation um should be carrying out unilateral research and investigation, or whether at the very least there should be information exchange between allies. I mean, the question of where the UK is in all this has been asked recently, and the answer seems to be not really in the game mm. at the moment. Mm. We're in a bizarre situation where the report that we discussed from Director of National Intelligence to Congress said UFOs are a safety of flight threat and a potential national security challenge. And yet the position of the Ministry of Defense and Her Majesty's government more generally is, we're not going to reopen the the UFO investigations that I did back in the 90s. Um, I think that's a mistake. I, I think if our closest ally and arguably the world's preeminent superpower says this is worthy of our attention and a potential threat, the Ministry of Defense should be saying, my goodness, yeah, we need to take a look at this and uh, let's work together on it. But we're not doing that so far as is, is known. Mm. And certainly if there isn't information exchange between allies, as you say, there absolutely definitely isn't between adversaries. We know... Russia has a program looking at this. We know China has a program looking at this, but no one's no one's really sharing information and data or working together. And a body like the United Nations, uh, they're certainly not being proactive and and saying, "Hey, we should be coordinating this." I wonder if it, it was more an open conversation, which again I hope for in in my lifetime, like space there would be more equilibrium of information because quite frankly without a lot of people might not understand that you know the politics is one thing uh, space exploration is another and you find countries coming together with research that you would never have ever thought of in your life uh, that would share information so let's hope for that final question for me nick is this and it, it's 
It's something that you might know the answer to now, you might not, but give me an idea. How has your ultimate aim changed from when this all began for you? Many years, probably before the MOD, quite frankly, because you are genuinely interested in this, to your ultimate aim going forward now? Well, I think when I was at the Ministry of Defence, my aim was, it was clearly defined. I, I think I would articulate it as essentially investigating all sightings within the UK air defence region and assessing threats and opportunities. And and part of that was tied up with the old Cold War mentality of, of could any of this be, as, as we would have said back in the day, Soviet and, and Warsaw Pact and, and more recently, of course, Russia and and now perhaps China in in the mix too. Um, so that was very clearly defined. My aim now, my ultimate aim is, I think, it more difficult to define. Of course, I've long since taken early retirement from the Ministry of Defence. I think my role now is more, more as a communicator, mm. somebody who can take some of these developments going on uh, and contextualize them for people and, and interpret them through the eyes of somebody who's done this from within government and give people, the media and through the media, the public, give people a sort of insider's perspective on what's going on, uh, what, what the issues might be and what we might have to, to think about in, in the next few years as, as we move further down the road with this. So I, I'm not one of these people. I, I, I sit really as an independent, I don't know, some way between the, the UFO community on one side uh, the media, the public, and I, I operate as an independent and and I, I simply do my best to, to bring out the information. Now, sometimes, as I mentioned, I do a specific piece of journalism or, or I mentioned reaching out to Office of Director of National Intelligence and, and I've had a hand in in bringing into the public domain various documents and information, but but there are others doing that too. So as I say, I mean my main my main focus is is really just keeping this in the spotlight, keeping it in the public eye, and doing my best to convey to people that that whether they're a skeptic or a believer or somewhere in the middle, mm. I mean, whatever we think about this. This is a serious issue, and it does raise defense and national security concerns, which are, to be fair, being looked at as we speak. And if I can play a part, however small, in unpacking that story for people and moving things forward, sometimes behind the scenes, I do, you know, I mentioned a couple of open things. I've done a couple of things behind the scenes that I, I can't discuss to try and mainly on the briefing side to mm. try and just move things forward. And if I can play a part in this, I will continue to do so because what could be more interesting, important and impactful, even if, as I mentioned earlier, we described this as low probability, but what could be more impactful than if just one of these cases 
turns out to be true. Because if this is what some people think it might be, extraterrestrial, then everything changes. Every aspect of our society would be irrevocably touched and altered by this, whether it's politics, economics, science, technology, philosophy, religion, whatever it is. So that keeps me hmm. in the game. Putting your old job title to one side, what's Nick Pope's gut feeling on the things that you have seen, not just in your job, but on TV and sightings and reports? What, what's your gut feeling about what those things might be? My gut feeling is pretty much what the Office of Director of National Intelligence said in their recent report. And one of the key phrases, which I, I didn't mention, but it's perfect time to, to unpack it now, is, is they said, look, there's unlikely to be a single neat solution to the UFO mystery. Chances are there's a lot of different things going on. So when people ask, and I, I sort of threw this into the conversation earlier, when people say, is it Russia, is it China, or is it something else, possibly something extraterrestrial, perhaps the answer is, well, look, it doesn't have to be any single one of those things. It could be all of those things. So that's what my gut's telling me. Lots of different things going on. And yeah, I cannot, I absolutely cannot rule out the possibility that the extraterrestrial hypothesis is correct. And as we always used to say at the Ministry of Defense, the skeptics have to be right every day. The believers only need to be right once. And what a great line. What can people look forward to from you in the coming months, Nick? Appearances and programs, things like that. Tell us a little bit. Well, I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing. So uh, there are going to be more revelations uh, in, in this ever unfolding story. We will see, for example, uh, as time goes on, new photos and videos that the US government, the military, the intelligence community have. Uh, we will see some new documents. We will hear from some new people who've been involved in some of these classified programs. Uh, and uh, I, I will continue doing broadcasting and journalism on that. So every, anything from a, a brief soundbite in a reporter's article to a, an op-ed or a feature that I write myself. And I'm going to carry on with the TV work that I'm doing. So more episodes of ancient aliens, whatever people think of ancient astronaut theory, ancient aliens, the show, is it's a cult phenomenon. It's possibly the single most effective way to get a lot of this into the public domain in front of millions of people worldwide. Mm. So, so I'm going to carry on doing that. And I have some new TV shows too, where I, I uh, bring forward some new information. I can't talk about those until the, the broadcasters, the networks make the official announcement. But there's, there's a lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline for sure. And I, I look forward to carrying on doing what I'm doing. Well, that's uh, great to look forward to. And, you know, I can't stress enough here, obviously, what Nick said. There, this is just, and I'm not exaggerating, this is just a pinch 
Okay, you just have to watch the 15 series of Ancient Aliens or whatever they're up to now, 26, I don't know, uh, uh, to, to find out the information that is packed there in Nick's brain that he re- he he resonates out through the series and, and, and things. And you'll only find that from going to search a little bit more about Nick. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, he's a renowned author as well. There's a lot of really interesting stuff about Nick. Uh, in in audio form as well people aren't so keen on reading sometimes so there's audio books from from uh from nick you can follow nick on twitter as well nick pope mod and as he mentioned look out for him on tv programs discussing everything alien and ufo related nick you are a very in-demand person so i've really valued your time today thank you so much thank you it's been great talking to you and i think we really covered a very wide range of material but also in a lot of depth so i hope that people find this interesting and that it generates uh, a lot of discussion and debate i think you're going to make people look up at the stars in a in a different way tonight i hope so well i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did brilliant chat with nick pope and you've been listening to steve reed chats series one ufos the paranormal and beyond episode one if you subscribe or click follow you'll always hear the next episode first